Hi there! Welcome back to JFS in Conversation. JFS in Conversation is a podcast created by Justice for Society in hopes to inform the world about important societal issues. Our podcast is released bi-weekly, and when you're not tuning into our podcast, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Justice for Society Magazine and at JFS in Conversation for more content and information on topics that are important to society. Hello, hello, and welcome back to JFS in Conversation. Today, we're being joined by Deborah, who's here to talk about the queer community and their relationship with the healthcare system. Deborah, how are you? I'm great, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. And before we started, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, my name's Deb Dunn. Um, I'm a PA, physician assistant and family practitioner that works at Chase Braxton Health Systems with an expertise in transgender medicine and LGB, HIV. Um, at which I've been doing for over 13 years now. I'm co-author of a program called Gender Joy, which is Gender Journeys of Youth. Myself, an endocrinologist, pediatric endocrinologist and psychologist wrote for the treatment and management for transgender children. And we now have 1900 transgender children. And the model is being used worldwide i mean nationwide for other people to model that's so wonderful to hear first thing we wanted to talk about for this topic was primarily how the healthcare system has changed and shaped the lgbtq plus population and so in regards to this we would mostly be talking about the north american system because that's um i'm sure where we're both based but any thoughts on that well since i've started um practice 1983 that's basically when the hiv aids epidemic started I was working in the emergency room, which I worked for 19 years. And so what the people that I saw were these new cases of HIV. And fortunately for me, I was one of the few people who had an opportunity to work in the emergency room to be with these people to help um, comfort them. And and a lot of times the last person to held their hand because it was kind of like COVID is now. Mm-hmm. Visitors weren't allowed to come in. Um, doctors were stigmatizing, not wanting to touch patients. Families weren't wanting to come in um, because no one really knew where it was coming from. But they just knew it was "quote unquote" gay man's disease. And at that time, the only treatment was AZT. But since then, um, you know, we've really made advances in HIV, AIDS, and we have one single pill. You know, most people are viral loads are undetected. Um, and generally, just the healthcare in the LGBTQ community period, we're beginning to see a little bit more um, insurance companies which are allowing us to uh, cover like gender affirmation surgeries, for example, and um, hormones, uh, puberty blockers. Um, but unfortunately, you know, what I'm not seeing is you know, enough practitioners um, in any medical curriculum that is educated enough or have been taught or trained about LGBTQ medicine because it's just not taught in any medical curriculum. So I I still think we're pretty far behind when it comes to that. But otherwise, I am beginning to see some advancements. I know another big part for like the healthcare system and how it specifically affects the queer community is also this lack of like proper healthcare for queer um, individuals in like the psychological field. And so we're not getting any like therapists or any practitioners who are very knowledgeable on like the experiences of queer individuals. And um, I know that definitely has affected the queer uh, population a whole lot. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, um, it's a a huge issue. Because of discrimination and stigma, 
um, stereotypes, um, rejection from families, um, people not accommodating, like in shelters and hospitals, uh, treatment centers, um, and just laws that don't protect the, the rights of LGBTQ people mm -hmm. as a direct impact that causes anxiety, depression, and mood disorders and substance use disorders, um, smoking cigarettes. Um, it's, it, we know it's kind of like a fight or flight, uh, similar to what happens when you're scared. When cortisol is released, um, you're in a near accident or something very scary happens when your heart's racing, your pupils are dilated, your, well, your blood pressure actually goes up, your blood sugar too. Um, but also you're anxious all the time, you're palpitating, you have chest pain, you have chronic pain. So definitely these microaggressions have definitely caused a lot of uh, mental health, behavior health type problems. It's not that the LGBTQ people all have mental issues or problems or diagnoses. It's the result of these microaggressions that are causing these anxieties and these depressions. And recent studies are showing large numbers um, of suicide attempts and suicide in the transgender community. And so therefore we, we absolutely know that there's not enough mental health professionals to meet the demands. And then when we do refer these people to uh, behavioral health people, they're just not knowledgeable enough on gender dysphoria or LGBTQ issue, issues. And so therefore they're really not willing to <laughs> take it in. But I would have hoped after all these years of me practicing at some point when they started seeing that one out of two people may die from suicide in the um, transgender community, we would be more serious about um, implementing harm reduction programs or training um, therapists and psychiatrists and how to manage the LGBTQ patient. Another aspect that I also wanted to talk about for how healthcare has changed and shaped the LGBTQ plus population is also, and this largely affects, of course, the transgender and the non-binary community, but this lack of like sufficient healthcare and support for individuals seeking hormones, etc. Popular arguments would be, oh, you're too young. Oh, like, what if you change your mind? All that kind of stuff. So could you talk a little bit about how that has changed and shaped the queer community as a whole? Absolutely. Um, we definitely know now from Gender Joy, um, our program that serves 1,900 transgender children, that the earlier we start the treatment of gender dysphoria, the way better they do. They're cognitively, their thinking and learning is more advanced, uh, social skills um, and uh, the ability to be in relationships with others are improved. Graduating from high schools, we're looking at scales now where anxiety, depression scales are markedly improved. And so you have to know when a parent comes and brings their child to me for the, you know, uh, for the first time, they have those questions. Like, how do I know my child? This is a, just a phase or how do I know that they're not going to change their mind later? Or how do, you know, am I going to make a mistake that's not reversible and I'm going to hurt them in the long run? But even the parents, you know, they know from somewhere deep in their spirit that that something's going on with their child and that basically they're very unhappy because most parents end up saying, I just want to see my child happy. Mm -hmm. But we call it persistent, insistent, resistant, persistent, insistent, resistant. So these people are saying, I want to be a girl. 
Um, yeah, I want to be a girl. Not they're saying I am a girl. I am a girl. Not I want to be a girl. But I am. I am. I am. I am a girl. Not I want to be a girl. Not I want to wear girl clothes or wear pink or um, play with girl toys. As I am, it's a persistence. Persistence. And as they get older, we're a multidisciplinary team. So we're therapists, we're caseworkers, we're psychiatrists, we're providers, doctors, PAs, nurse practitioners, and RNs, medical assistants, uh, dentists. We all work with the families and try to tra help them go through the transition process. It may mean we have to go into schools and fight against bullying or make it the schools accommodating for bathrooms. But um, it is really advanced. It used to be kind of like a guest medicine um, where it was almost trial. But now, you know, a lot of us, I'm on a team with five other groups um, like Fenway and Lion Martin, Howard Brown. These are other big LGBTQ centers in the nation that serve uh, this community of people. Uh, you know, we are realizing now that we, we, we can come together with this data so we know we can no longer, I mean, we no longer have to guess about it. And so we see improvement of these children. We don't see people detransitioning. Um, we do what's called treat to go. So I tell the parents, you know, they may not need to be on a regular regimen of hormones, but just as needed. So it's very validating when a person tells you, oh, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I'm happy with my voice or the shape of my body or, I just needed to take sometimes, um, you know, to feel more centered. Um, so it's not zero to a hundred. So that that always seems to help parents. But I can tell you, one of the hardest things I have to deal with are people in society saying to me that you know these people are too young; they should not be able to make a decision like this. Um, you know, what are you doing? Are you changing the sex of these kids? But you know, there, we have different things that we can do. We can stall puberty, we can use puberty blockers, and then later if we remove it, they'll go through puberty. But rarely do we have to do that. But society really is the one that's not ready for it. But I know, and we all know here that the kids are doing fabulously the earlier they start. And to just go into a little bit more of specifics, and this mm -hmm. is kind of jumping the gun a little, but also I know, of course, another popular argument is that healthcare professionals um, should be able to choose whether or not to treat a person based on their gender identity or sexual slash mm -hmm. uh, romantic attraction. And this, of course, goes back to um, whether that be because they think it's for religion or like free choice, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. But regardless, we did want to ask, do you know how feasible this is like legally medical law? And if so, are there like, loopholes that healthcare professionals will who choose not to treat people based on their gender identity and or sexual slash romantic attraction that they can get through in terms of like medical ethic laws yeah it's not yeah there's no law that says that they have to now insurance companies they're under a different mandate they have to they can't discriminate based on gender identity or sexual orientation mm. but they were able to find a loophole so they were able to, the bigger commercial insurers, they were able to figure out how to underwrite these self-insured accounts, which are not mandated by federal government to not discriminate against oh. gender identity. So mm -hmm. now if you work, for example, 
Wakanda City. I don't. I, I just made up a city because <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to like target any one city. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, I got this um, underwritten policy from Care First or United Healthcare or Aetna and all this stuff. Then um, I'm able to add in exclusions into the plan. So, example, I can say uh, we're not going to cover gender affirmation surgeries or the hormones or anything dealing with gender dysphoria. They can say we don't, we don't, we don't want to treat or prescribe HIV medicines and prep. So the exclusions is up to the person of the, of the leadership team of that organization. And so a lot of people that are employees don't realize that that happens. So a lot of the exclusions really are excluding them of um, healthcare benefits like fertility and you know other things like that. But because uh, these are like kind of underwritten to save money, to save money from these policies that they add on to the employee, um, they just add them in there. Uh, mm-hmm. But these other uh, other big commercial, they they're not allowed to. They have to cover. I they see. Have to cover surgeries and the hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, and in regards to like steps uh, that would need to be taken for this change, um, do you have any steps in particular that you think would have to change both logistically? So for example, um, in like the medical community throughout the process of like your medical education, if we're actually being uh, certified, um, et cetera, and becoming practitioner, what changes do you think would need to be seen there? Of course, like beyond that, what changes and do you think you need to change in society and like their views in order to also foster this change? Because of course, both are like interweaved. Right. So first of all, I really believe that um, LGBTQ medicine should be mandated, taught in every single medical curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, medical schools, nurse practitioner schools, PA schools, dentistry, um, their uh, behavior health therapists, dentistry, everybody, gynecologists. And you should be not only forced to take mandated to take these classes, but there should be questions, multiple questions on the board. So you can't just say I took it and then not be serious about it, but you would have Mm -hmm. to take board questions and pass them. Mm -hmm. I think that there should be continued uh, education um, credits, which is tied into incentives. So, um, you know, if you take uh, these CME, if you get CMEs and LGBTQ health, for example, you know, you'll get these incentives. Or they can say, we will not renew your license if you don't take a certain number of CMEs in LGBTQ medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, laws are very, the laws are very biased also. And the only, we're not gonna change people's stereotypes and stigmas and biases. So therefore we do have to change laws. We gotta implement laws that protect the human rights for every single body. Mm-hmm. LGBTQ people should not be denied housing or jobs. You know, all of those are still things that are still happening. Mm-hmm. In the South, they passed a law that transgender children could not take puberty blockers. In other words, they can't do any kind of medical transition. And we know the impact it's gonna have on those kids, but law is gonna be the only way we're, we're gonna have to become little civil rights leaders and go down to Annapolis or wherever your state um, capital is, where you have legislatures and council people and fight the law. 
on this changing laws, implementing laws is the only way that we're going to be able to change it. And do you think uh, with that, there's also going to be change with like societal views and stereotypes and things like that? Because once it's enforced, like, I mean, you can't really avoid it, right? So you kind of have to look it straight on. Well, I think that um, I gave an example of talking to some, a group of doctors today in one of the hospitals. Um, I felt like I, you can always look around the room and see light bulbs coming in. Mm. So I, whenever I'm out teaching or, you know, lecturing, you know, you see those people who just weren't educated enough. And then these light bulbs come on. Oh, man, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. I really want to be part of opening access. And one of the persons was like, I was going to be, I was going to specialize in cancer and stuff, but now I think I want to do the surgeries, mm. you know? So um, I think that if we can get a positive, uh, uh, educate people in a positive way that they start seeing LGBTQ people in a different light, then it can change people's mind. Because I'm always asking my patients, do some testimonies do some documentaries, do some documentaries and talk about your life and let people see how resilient and persistent and successful you are. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and on the topic of barriers, um, and at this point, of course, we're just gonna be talking a little bit more in uh, specific to, I think our last um, point about uh, individuals seeking hormones and that lack of like deficient health care and support. Um, we did want to talk about like what specific barriers uh, prevent those who are looking for hormone treatment or top surgery. And then if you could also talk about perhaps um, the intersectional barriers that an individual may, might have if they're both like BIPOC and queer or a woman of color and queer, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. Are there specific barriers that not a lot of people know about, but should um, things like that? Well, first of all, um, one of the barriers for getting surgeries are transgender people are required to get letters from a therapist, mm -hmm. right? So nobody else that you know that has a need, a medical necessary surgery, because that's what these are. These are not cosmetic surgeries, the medical, medically necessary surgery. Mm -hmm. No one else that needs one, a type of surgery like that has to go to a therapist first, get a surgical assessment, and then get a letter written. And sometimes by more than one therapist, maybe it may have to be someone with a PhD also. You know, people wanting breast augmentation, they don't ever have to go to a therapist and, you know, and get this assessment. So that's one of the biggest barriers. And as we discussed earlier, there's just no behavior help people. There, you know, we there, and then if they find behavioral health people, they're like, I don't know how to write those letters. I mean, I'm not a gender therapist. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to be a gender therapist to see transgender people. No one is, you know, it's something you learn. You know, you, you know how to treat anxiety, depression, so forth and so on. It's no different. But they definitely were not taught how to write the letters. So I definitely think that, um, you know, those are definitely roadblocks to people getting surgeries. Um, some people are not able to get insurance. So the people who are not able to get insurance is a huge uh, cost. But Maryland Medical Assistance, the state I live in, definitely covers uh, top and bottom surgeries 100%. Mm -hmm. And then intersectionality, definitely. You know, I see it all the time. I even see it in my own life. Um, like I can't 
the lived experience of a transgender person, I can't actually give you a perspective from that because I've never been a transgender person or I've never been married to a transgender person or a parent of a transgender person, but I am an LGBTQ person, black, lesbian, queer, Christian, who've experienced discrimination in housing and jobs and um, churches and places like that. So I can give you my truth. You know, I can tell you my lived experience and I can tell you that if you don't have a village of people in your back, it's tough. So it's really um, different cultures, it's different economical status. Like when I asked a group of people one time, would you let your assigned male at birth boy wear fingernail polish? Well, there was a whole group of people that said, yeah, I think it would be no problem. But then there was this whole other group of people with these lived experience that were black that said, my son could never get on a bus with fingernail polish on. He will get beat up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so how do you help people to live authentically, you know, mm-hmm. with the, and the, those are barriers and those are real concerns. You really do need to be concerned that there could be violence that people can do hate crimes against you. Mm-hmm. And so w- one of the things that I like to teach people too is the cultural humility part, which is humbling yourself and saying, I do not know what it's like to be a transgender person, you know? And can you explain to me about your experience? Of, you know, what types of things that you have to face? How has it impacted you and affected you? Um, what type of advice could you give me that I can help other people with? How can I support you? How can I make you safe? You know, and so that's what we're going to have to start doing more of that from coming uh, from a place of power. We need to start coming from a place of humbleness, mm-hmm. you know, and stereotyping and um, try to really find out where the person's living because you've got to be able to see through their lens. Mm-hmm. I would imagine too, um, for like intersectional barriers that an individual might have, like as a person of color, of course, the issues that like we would face in terms of, of course, um, impact on our communities being of a social, like a lower socioeconomic class because of red lines, as we talked about earlier, uh, job discrimination, all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of people also need to consider the fact that these things affect being able to have hormone treatment, uh, treatment or top surgery simply because oh, yeah. of like the amount of money you have um, or, yeah. uh, you know, the experiences you have and, and what you have to consider and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I imagine those are barriers as well uh, for those who are seeking um, hormone treatment or top surgery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not to mention there's just not enough access to people who know how to prescribe the hormones. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a, that takes us back to the mandate and teaching in school. But you're right, a lot of barriers is insurance and not, you know, not, you make a little bit too much for med- medical assistant and not enough to afford commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's a lot of mistrust for some people, you know, um, I've, mm-hmm. I've never had a good experience with a provider. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, I don't know if you're going to jack me up or mess me up, you know, what kind of way, how are you going to look at me? Are you going to judge me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people walk in the room and just expecting something bad for someone to say something bad or something to happen. I know a big issue um, with uh, healthcare and, and queer individuals is finding 
um, especially if you're like seeking uh, psychological help, is finding individuals who have lived experience. Um, just because like I know so many people go through so many therapists and so many psychologists because they're just unable to find someone who um, mm-hmm. doesn't like microaggress them or um, you know do all that kind of stuff. And so I'm sure that's a barrier as well, especially for someone who um, is both BIPOC and queer um, and things like that. And also mm-hmm. access to those people in their communities a large topic that we have been talking about um, so far in the recording is also trans healthcare. And so at this point in time, I also wanted to talk about uh, the progression of trans healthcare. And so like, how far has it come? Um, do you think like it's more than we could have hoped for at this current state in time? Or um, could we have been even further at this point um, and all that kind of stuff? Um, well, we still have an issue with um, data collection. So mm-hmm. um, another important thing that needs to be mandated, you know, I think the government agencies first, uh, they're going to have to require that all doctor's offices, all facilities, everybody that reports any kind of um, patient um, stuff should Mm -hmm. have to be um, collect, it's called SOGI data, uh, the sexual orientation and the gender identity. So in other words, you can't just have two genders. You can't just have a male or female on, on, on forms, on mm-hmm. intake forms, in your computers, in your electronic medical records. There has to be other places where a person can tell what their gender is. Because a trans woman is not a man, a man who have had sex with men. They are mm-hmm. females. And so if you're reporting different things like HIV, STIs, where there's supposed to be all these money from the government, but they don't know that there's transgender people because no one's collecting that data, then that's, uh, that's harmful. I've heard um, city um, health departments say every year this money rolls right back into this pot because we don't see people uh, transgender who's HIV. And I'm like, they are, we see them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and so that we got to get data collection for that. We also, it's very important that we get data collection also so that we can determine health disparities. Um, you know, what, what's impacted this community of people? Um, what's causing them to have cardiovascular disease, for example? We know that LGBTQ people are more prone to cigarettes and poor diet and overweight. But, you know, what we need to really be able to target um, and, and look at different ways that we can help, and especially with preventive care, um, and just how to know how to ask the questions. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm seeing more and more people who are dying from metastatic cancer that's in the gay and the LGBTQ community, and it's because it's shameful. It's because they haven't gotten their preventive care. They don't go for Paps and mammograms. And it's just hard because no one's telling them that they need to get this preventive care. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, the people don't, they don't think they need it. But if we were able to um, target like maybe top 10 health disparities just from our research and our data, then I think that doctors will have, do a better job targeting certain things in the community. So the data collection has got to be important and SOGI data. And, uh, and it being able to be collected in emergency medical records is very important. And then there's got to be more research. Or, you know, there's gotta be more um, people, scientists, or anybody who's willing to do research. 
A hundred percent. Finally, the last point that, of course, we wanted to cover was also: Are there any other intersectional issues that the queer community faces that hasn't been raised in societal conversation regarding the queer community and also the healthcare system that you also wanted to bring up, um, and that you think should be brought up more? Well, I think um, sexual history and sexual history taken is really important. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the LGBTQ sex ed was never taught in any curriculum, so no, no health ed class. Uh, so I, th- I think sexual health has to be important, um, has to be added in there also. It's not good anywhere. Yes, with that, actually, the episode has come to an end. Unfortunately, we have reached our time. But with that, uh, first of all, was there anything else you would like to add? And secondly, where can our listeners reach you um, if they would like to? Yes, um, I'm thankful. I mean, I've got to say thank you for inviting me and that um, more talks like this are so important because we got to reach a broader audience um, mm-hmm. that we're able to really reach here at Chase Braxton. Um, so they, I can be reached. My name is Deb Dunn, D-U-N-N. Um, they can call Chase Braxton. Um, and they, that would be, they'll, they'll get a message to me. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> thank you all very, very much for listening. And thank you, of course, for guesting. And we will all see you next time. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't go just yet. This is a gentle nudge that Justice for Society is hosting our second conference. We are hosting a free and virtual seminar featuring a panel of three specialists in gender-based violence activism, White Ribbon, ABAAD, and GBV Prevention Network. Attend to learn what this issue is, the root causes and impacts, and ways for students to get involved in the fight against it. There will be an audience Q&A session, prizes, and more. This conference will be on November 27th, 2021 from 11 a.m. EST to 1 p.m. EST. Further updates and information regarding our conference can be found on our Instagram at Justice for Society Magazine and at JFS in Perspective. You can also find this information on our website, which is justiceforsocietymagazine.com. Be sure to sign up, and we look forward to seeing you all there.